0: Good morning, my name is Tammy Luce. This morning our scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I will be reading Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 from the New English Translation. One dead fly makes the perfumer's ointment give off a rancid stench. So a little folly can outweigh much wisdom. A wise person's good sense protects him, but a fool's lack of sense leaves him vulnerable. Even when a fool walks along the road, he lacks sense and shows everyone what a fool he is. The word of the Lord. Good morning. morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I would like to start this morning with a prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we've gathered here in this space and time uh, to hear from you, to worship you, to think upon our life and consider ways we might change, opportunities for growth. God, meet us exactly where we're at, all of us coming from many different places this week. Settle our minds, open our hearts, and allow us to hear the words of life that you might have for us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're asking the question what's the point? That's the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in the home stretch. We have three Sundays left, including today, chapter 10, 11, and 12. And after that, we're going to start the book of James. If you sit down and you start pondering your life even a little bit, you will inevitably come to see that fools exist in this world and you have to figure out how you're going to deal with fools you have to learn what foolishness is you have to be honest about your foolish moments you have to look back to a retrospective of yourself and you have to honestly conclude that yeah you've been a fool before it's not a foreign concept it's a familiar one and it's a personal one and it's not just him or her but it's also me And uh, foolishness is a huge part of what makes the world go round. And as we know, it takes all kinds. I was thinking about this idea of foolishness, and uh, three particular stories came to mind that I wanted to share with you to uh, open up this topic to us. So my family and I, we immigrated to this country in 1981, and we landed in a town called Bridgeport, Connecticut. Anybody been there? Oh, wow. Yeah, Bridgeport, Connecticut. And this was like the second day in America for me. The only English words I knew were thank you. And I pronounced it differently than that. <laughs> but I, I don't remember the words that took place, but I was invited by two neighborhood boys to play football. And they were just, turns out, making fun of me. And I became the monkey in the middle. And I was eight years old, but I still remember going back and forth, running like a monkey in the middle, Uh, And it was the first time I'd ever seen a football, heard of a football, touched a football. Actually, I don't remember if I touched it that day. (laughs) But even though it was so long ago, I still remember how humiliated I felt when I realized what game was actually happening, that I was the butt of the joke. And I remember just having some sense of pride that was my ego kicked in. And I just kept doing that because I couldn't admit that I was being made a fool. Another story that came to mind is I grew up poor, uh, trying to figure out, you know, life in America, and uh, I, had, I didn't discover Gore-Tex as a fabric, as an option for jackets, until I was in grad school. Now, I had heard about Gore-Tex, but it was always for, like, those rich kids who went skiing, you know? But... Uh, A friend of mine, he said, you know, you too can have Gore-Tex. And he showed me this jacket that was really uh, underpriced, and I bought it, and I was so happy. It was just mind-blowing to think fabric can be waterproof and yet breathable, you know? So, uh, and I see this in uh, one of my kids. We both do this. When something, things can become precious to me really quick, and then the thing that I want to do once something is precious is I want to sleep with it. And so, and I usually, uh, I slept back then with nothing on, just underwear on. But that night, I slept with my Gore-Tex and underwear on. (laughs) So it was right against my skin. If you remember the old uh, jacket, it was a North Face Mountain Classic. Okay, not your thinnest jacket. I slept with it. And during the night, I became drenched in sweat. I was having nightmares. And I was just sort of, tossing and turning all night, didn't sleep well at all. In the morning, Susie looked at me and my pitiful condition and said, you're a fool. <laughs> I was a fool. Why did I think that would work? How would that bring me any joy? Um, another story that came to mind is when I was seeking Susie's hand in marriage, I wanted to ask her dad for her, her, his blessing, permission, to marry his daughter. It was about February uh, 1997. Uh, Susie was still a senior in college. She was going to graduate in April. But I drove to Chicago so I can propose to Susie uh, in the month of March. So I drove to Chicago, and I'm sitting down at the kitchen table, a little round table with Susie's mom and Susie's dad, and I said, I'm here to ask for your permission to marry Susie. And he said, no. And then I, being the fool that I am, said, well, then I'm not asking. I'm telling you. We're getting married. Right? I want to punch that Peter in the face. The dad in me wants to punch that Peter in the face. And then he explained himself. He said, you know, Susie went, left for college, and she was just 17. She was like our baby. And she's not even back yet. And we just want to have her for one year. Can you just postpone your plans for one year so we can just enjoy Susie for one year? And of course I should have said yes, but I said absolutely not. (laughs) When it's time, it's time. And I insisted on it, and it just opened a whole can of just tension and discomfort and sabotage and closed hearts and judgment. Uh, After our engagement dinner, I was in the bathroom, Susie's dad was in the bathroom, we're standing next to each other washing our hands, and I was excited and oblivious to what life or, you know, the world is looking like to him. I said, how are you doing? And he said, I feel like I just got robbed, and he walked out the bathroom door. I thought, what's wrong with this guy? (laughs) Nothing. Everything was wrong with me. I was a fool. Can you imagine? I mean, I have four daughters now, so karma's going to pay me a visit. but i wish i could do that differently i wish i could have given them a year you know i mean that'd be so such a nice thing for them to have a year of their life back with susie anyway i've been a fool before and these are just some of the stories i thought of so many stories of ways that i was foolish and when you look back you tend not to think oh what a wise person i was you know you tend to think what a jerk what a fool What an idiot. How dumb. How silly. How immature. Have you been a fool before in your life? Are you a fool? And so this is a question I want to start with. And just to tell you where we're headed, I'm going to ask the question, are you a fool? And then we're going to end with humility. Because the opposite of being a fool is being humble. So we're going to go there. But let's start with this question. Are you a fool? Can you recall a season or a moment or maybe a relationship or a job where you can look back and declare yourself a fool? Do you have any memories of you being a fool? Think of a story where you were dumb. You got one? I see smirking happening around the room. Verse 1 and 2 really, uh, I think, paints the picture of why foolishness abounds. One dead fly makes the perfumer's ointment give off a rancid stench. So a little folly cannot weigh much wisdom. A wise person's good sense protects him, but a fool's lack of sense leaves him vulnerable. There is a lot of wisdom in, in you and also in the world. There's a lot of smart people, a lot of people thinking good thoughts. But with all of that wisdom, just a little bit of foolishness can undo it all. And that's the nature of wisdom and foolishness that Solomon, the author, is describing here. It just takes one little fly to ruin the whole batch. That's all it takes. You can be wise 99 days out of 100. But that one foolish moment sets the course of your life in a totally different direction direction foolishness on the uh, in, in other words is powerful and foolishness is more powerful than wisdom this is what the author is saying be aware that as wise as you are foolishness abounds and we are all vulnerable is the word to foolishness If you want to be wise, you have to really figure out how you're going to do that. Because it's so easy to play the fool. It takes nothing and no time at all to make one silly little mistake and everything is ruined. Verse 3. Even when a fool walks along the road, he lacks sense and shows everyone what a fool he is. This is the obvious fool. And I would think that most of us aren't the obvious fool. You know, we're not just just dripping with foolishness. You know, this guy that the uh, uh, writer is writing about, just walking down the road, he looks like a fool. He walks like a fool, he talks like a fool, smells like a fool. He is a fool, and he's a fool all the time. He is always the fool. I thought of one person as soon as I started thinking these thoughts. One person immediately came to mind, and I was thinking, I wonder if they're still a fool. And I looked them up on Facebook, and it looks like they're still a fool. (laughs) Living the fool's life. So fools exist, but this guy is rare. Most of us are wise. And we have these vulnerable moments when our foolishness somehow spoils everything. Uh, Solomon gives us some ways that we can so easily be foolish and just sort of tick things off as I go through these verses to see if you've been a fool in this way or if you've observed it in uh, someone else. Uh, The first area where we see foolishness is in positions of power. Verse 5 to 7, I have seen another misfortune on the earth. It is an error a ruler makes. Fools are placed in many positions of authority, while wealthy men sit in lowly positions. I have seen slaves on horseback and princes walking on foot like slaves. Solomon is saying that not all people in power should be in power. Have you known this to be true in our society at all? Have you had a boss or a pastor or a president who ought not be? Because they're fools, right? Uh, Another category is in the area of work. Verse 8. Through 10, one who digs a pit may fall into it, and one who breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. One who queries stones may be injured by them, and one who splits logs may be endangered by them. If an iron axe head is blunt and a workman does not sharpen its edge, he must exert a great deal of effort. So wisdom has the advantage of giving success. Have you noticed that not all work is productive? Some motion is just commotion. But it's not getting you anywhere. Some movements are actually just spastic and not the coordinated movements and effort of an athlete that leads to success and victory. We sort of stay busy, but doesn't mean that we're actually doing good work. Just because we're working hard doesn't mean we're working smart. Sometimes we work in foolish ways. Think about it you're breaking through a wall oblivious to the fact that there are snakes inside the wall that's the picture or you're querying stones and then it falls on you and injures you you're splitting logs and you get injured you're swinging an axe but it's not sharp and you think you have the power and the perseverance to keep using this dull axe work it's foolishness in work how about words verse 11 to 13, uh, 14 If the snake should bite before it is charmed, the snake charmer is in trouble. The words of a wise person win him favor, but the words of a fool are self-destructive. At the beginning, his words are foolish, and at the end, his talk is wicked madness. Yet a fool keeps on babbling. No one knows what will happen. Who can tell him what will happen in the future? Have you noticed how powerful words can be? And yet how foolish words can be. So many times I wish I had said things when I didn't say it, and so many times I wish I had said it differently or not said anything at all. Words, so powerful. Uh, As I was thinking about this, I thought about this one person in my class uh, that I'm taking these days And uh, every time he opens his mouth, all of us sort of put our, either literally or metaphorically, put our face in our hands and we just wish he'd shut up. Because he just sounds like a fool, but he keeps going. He won't stop. Can you think of ways that you've been foolish with your words? Last one is what I would call fit or timing. Timing. Verse 16 through 19 Woe to you, O land, when your king is childish and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time with self control and not in drunkenness. Because of laziness the roof caves in, and because of idle hands the house leaks. Feasts are made for laughter and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. Have you ever noticed how timing and fit and appropriateness matters? It really does. In the same class that I just uh, referred to earlier, uh, I'm sort of the class joker, and I take great pride in being the funny man in class. And uh, every, every week when I come back from class, Susie asks me, were you funny today? And she wants me to re- recall and retell those same jokes. And uh, to her great delight and my pleasure, I do that. But I told a beautiful joke this past week, but it was really poorly timed, and it was too loud. It just didn't fit the room, the feeling in the room at all, and everybody just looked at me like blank stares. Nobody laughed. I was so embarrassed. I couldn't get out of it. Uh, And I was uh, reminded that timing matters. You know, being appropriate matters. Have you ever been a fool in this way, where something... Uh, you did or said or decision you made. It just was ill-timed. It didn't fit the occasion. Has that ever happened to you? So these are just some of the ways that we play the fool. In our words, in our positions, in our work, and in our timing, we are foolish. Are you a fool? Have you been a fool? Um. Now I want to ask the question, are you wise? If you are a fool, how do you become wise? And here's what I think we see in this scripture today. That wisdom, it's not about being savvy or mastering your words or perfecting your sense of timing or working in a really smart way. But wisdom is always an overflow of someone who is humble. Humble. If you are humble, you will be wise. You can't be humble and a fool at the same time. So for example, uh, think about the fool who's walking down the road and he's just dribbling foolishness. Whatever he's doing, whatever he's thinking, whatever he's saying, he just proves himself to be a fool time and time again. And I think the reason he's always a fool is because he's self-centered. He's oblivious to other people. He doesn't understand reality around him. He's focused just on himself. And so everybody's thinking, this guy is clueless. This guy has no sense what's going on. He doesn't know how to read the room, read the road, read the situation. He makes bad decisions. He's talking when he shouldn't be talking. He's totally out of touch with reality. Well, what is he in touch with? He's in touch with himself. That's the first clue. Think about how delusional, secondly, you have to be to be sitting in a position of power and yet remain a fool. You're totally out of touch with how people are experiencing you. You don't realize your own ineffectiveness. You lack self-awareness. You are delusional because you are not humble enough to see what's happening. What about working? Working hard? You know, you're digging, right? You're breaking through a wall, let's say. A humble person says, you know, there could be snakes behind here. There could be a tarantula. There could be who knows what's behind this wall. It's a wall. I can't see through it. So there's a kind of humility that they have before they do the work. So they ask the right questions. What should we do? They have learned from previous jobs. So they know not to just smash open a wall because there might be snakes. Snakes are indigenous to this area. They like living in walls. There might be snakes in here. Or you're carrying a stone, a heavy stone that can crush you. But you're smart about how you carry the stone primarily because you're humble. You respect that the stone is heavier than you. It's bigger than you. You can't contain its full force. And so you ask smart questions about how stones ought to be quarried, how they ought to be carried, how they ought to be uh, shaped. You're splitting a log. Logs are big, it's heavy, but you're humble enough to ask the question. This log is pretty heavy. It's, It's pretty unwieldy. It could crush me. Let me ask some questions before I set out to do this work. What about swinging an axe? How arrogant do you have to be to think you can swing a dull axe? for as long as it takes. It's the humble person who is honest about their own weakness. It's the humble person who says, you know, I'm not that strong and I can't keep doing this. So let me figure out ways to do it smarter. Not because I'm trying to be smart, but because I'm humble about my strength. So it causes you to look at the axe head and say, I wonder what would happen if I sharpened it. And then you realize sharpening an axe helps you be uh, better at swinging the axe. And that's not because you're smart. That's because you are humble. What about your sense of timing? The reason your timing is off is because you are focused on yourself. You weren't being attentive to other people around you and the factors and the worlds that they're coming from. You don't you're fit and your timing is off because you have been self-focused. You have been arrogant, you have been proud. So the good timing and the good fit belongs to those who are humble enough to see reality around them. They can read the room. To ask the question, "Are you wise?" is to ask the question, "Are you humble?" And I think this is a helpful way for me to think about it because wisdom seems like a thousand little pieces. You know, you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you read the book of Proverbs, which is about wisdom. You read the Bible, you read other books, and you realize, man, there's so many ways to be wise. There are so many ways to be a fool. I can never be wise. There's just too much to know. How can I become a wise person? So this just sort of Boils it down for me to one simple trait that I can focus on in any given moment. When a situation arises, when I'm presented with a circumstance, when I'm caught off guard, I can immediately ask the question what does humility look like? What does it mean to be humble? Because in that humility is wisdom. But here's the rub. Humility often doesn't look like wisdom. Humility isn't attractive. We're not drawn to that. We really like up and to the right. We like success. That's what we are drawn to. We don't, put, uh, we don't showcase or give press to people who are humble. We showcase people who are amazing. Who look like they're succeeding, who look like they're powerful, who look like they're savvy and they're gifted and they're talented and they're strong. These are the people we tend to want to see and emulate and imitate, and yet wisdom comes to us and says, actually, it's humility that we ought to be attracted to. I thought of one situation that some of you may not know about, but uh, Mother Teresa died several years ago, as you know. And she's been sort of lauded as uh, a saint. She did all this work among the poor. Um, But after she passed, uh, the Catholic Church got their hands on her personal uh, diaries. And they started publishing some of the entries uh, in her diary. And you know what those diaries reveal? They reveal that towards the end of her life, she became very disillusioned with her call. And then she became disillusioned about God's goodness as she saw so much suffering all around her. And then she became disillusioned about even the existence of God itself. You know, we think of her as a saint and this amazing uh, human being because that's the way we want to think about her. But the truth is, she was a broken person. And she struggled with her own personal faith and dependence on God. And when she was dying, uh, Uh, part of her fan base turned against her because all her life she preached embracing suffering and dying uh, well through the suffering, and she advised against medical treatments on many cases, and yet she herself was receiving world-class medical care as she lay dying, and she was criticized for that. And so if you look at the arc of her life, it's not an up and to the right, but it's really more of a bell curve, she started out humble. She did humble work. And then she started getting recognition. She became famous and popular. She became an icon. And then she started personally, privately, diminishing in her faith. And my read of how, uh, what God is tracking in all of us is God doesn't care. He, his allegiance is not to the up and to the Right? He doesn't care about our constant success or appearance of success. What God is doing is the work of humbling us on the inside. And through all of the ways that we live and move and have our being, the thing that God's tracking is our humility, the condition of our hearts, our openness to grace and serendipity, our willingness to be generous and serve and give, our understanding that loving the least of them is how we love Jesus Christ Himself. And God's not afraid of Mother Teresa doubting his goodness or existence. He's still wanting to uh, do the work in her that only he can do, helping her to come into contact with her humble state. That she's not a superhuman being, but she's a person. And she has doubts and struggles. And she died struggling. And for God, that is okay. Because God's not after wisdom per se. He's not after success. He's not after shiny. He's after humility. And often because humility uh, doesn't look like wisdom and wisdom, we don't think it's humility. uh, We often mistake wisdom for foolishness and foolishness for wisdom. We are drawn to the foolish. We lift up the foolish and we think that's the way we ought to live. But there's another voice, a humbler voice, a quieter voice in your hearts whispering to you, letting you know that's not what God is after. God's after your humble heart. God wants you to see yourself as lowly in your own eyes because that's what you truly are. He wants you to be the person who's holding an axe and going, you know, I'm too weak to swing this axe. I don't have the strength. And that humility causes you to say, maybe I should sharpen the axe. God wants you to be that person who doesn't rush to break down the wall, who knows how to carry stones, not because you are strong, but because you are weak and you know you are weak. So then you begin to become a student and you begin to learn how to carry stones. Um, three uh, stories about wisdom found in humility. Uh, one is Larry Crabb. Anybody know Larry Crabb, the psychi- psychologist and author? So all his life, he wrote books. And he wrote books about how valuable it is to be in, uh, in a relationship with your therapist. This was his field of study. And uh, later on, when I was... Um, In grad school, Larry Crabb published, uh, put out a book that was unlike any book he's ever written, and it's called Connecting. That's the title of the book. And in this book, Connecting, Larry Crabb does a full reversal in the book, and he says, I apologize for all of the books I've written up to this point. I've been advocating for uh, psychotherapy and everything I've written, but at this stage, he was an old man by that time. He wrote, Now I've lived life long enough to see the key is not having a surrogate relationship with your therapist, but it's about connecting to real people in real relationships. And when other people around you, real people know you and they're able to see the good that God meant for you and speak that truth into your life, then that's going to pull you up and out of whatever you're suffering from. You really need to figure out how to connect to other people. Because in other people, and he talks about the priesthood of all believers, God, more and more, the way he's shaping the world is to flatten access to him. So you don't have to go to a therapist to be redeemed. You can have good friends and be be redeemed. You don't have to be prayed for by the pastor. You can pray. And so uh, he takes everything back he says, now figure out how to connect with people. Here's what connecting looks like. And here's why connecting is life-saving. And now, this, is a, this was a really traumatic thing for his uh, colleagues and for his fans because they felt indicted by his book, his reversal and position. And they were really upset with him for a long time. But that's the journey that wisdom took him on. It made him humble enough to accept the fact that he'd made a mistake for decades. And he was able to own that and write a final book that was life-giving. Another person that came to mind is Bill Hybels. And I thought of him because our own Al Lopez has worked with Bill Hybels in Willow Creek Church in Chicagoland. It's a 30,000-member church, large church. And after doing decades of ministry, um, they hired Al Lopez and others to do what's called a Reveal Survey. They did a church-wide, deep dive into how the church was doing. And what they learned was that they had been catering to consumers for decades. And they really missed the memo on how important it is to make disciples of Christ. There wasn't enough maturity in the uh, life of the church, and in the people of the church. And so Bill Hybels repents of the ways they've been doing church, and does a complete pivot, and radically changes what church sounds like, and looks like. And you could actually hear this, if you listen to a sermon pre-reveal survey, you, you sort of sense that it is more consumer-oriented, and then you listen to a Hybels sermon after the reveal survey, it's much deeper. He says the word Jesus more often. You sort of just Change the way they do church. And I think it took a lot of humility to get to that place of wisdom for Bill Hybels. Uh, Another uh, third story that I thought of is my own story, my own burnout learning. I learned through my burnout that I was mostly driven by a desire to save myself. It really wasn't a desire or ability to save other people, but I was really desperate for my own salvation. And so I learned uh, the hard way that caring for my own soul is really the best way to lead anything, to do any kind of ministry, either to the family or to the church. There's something counterintuitive about the pathway that leads to wisdom if God is going to make you into a wise person, the, the narrative arc in your life is not going to be up and to the right. And this is the application point. If you want to be wise, your life story is going to look like this, up and down, up and down, forwards and backwards, two, three steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, five steps back it's not going to always go well for you because that's how you become humble. And until you are humble, you are not learning. And if you're not learning, you are not wise. Are you okay with that? Are you okay if your life doesn't go up and to the right, but it's kind of a bell curve? like Mother Teresa's or Larry Krabs or Bill Hybels or mine, it's just as confusing often. You don't know what God's doing, and you don't know why. You don't know how, and you don't know when. When you're in that space, that's when you are being humbled. That's where you are asking questions. That's where you are learning and being formed and shaped over time to be wise. A thing that's really helpful, and as I thought about my own life this past week and wondered out loud to myself, how have I grown in wisdom? How have I grown in humility? What is the one key thing I can share with our church? And the answer I landed on was mentors. It's other people who are wise, who are able to temporarily absorb your foolishness and stay close to you so they can walk with you mentors who are absorbent, real people, not books, not some other person you sort of admire from afar, but people that you're checking in with on a regular basis, unless these people are walking with you and speaking into your life, you're probably going to remain a fool. I can think of no better, more effective strategy that God has given to us to grow than other people. We end with uh, a reading of some verses. Uh, there's a funny little verse, verse 20. Do not curse a king even in your thoughts, and do not curse the rich while in your bedroom, for a bird might report what you are thinking, or some winged creature might repeat your words. What's funny? Was I being a funny man again? I sometimes do that by accident. I'm so good. No? I'm thinking about the bird. <laughs> Yeah. Now, who is this king? I think this king is God, and I think he has heard our curse. He has heard us talking about what a fool he is. But instead of seeking revenge on us, instead of punishing us, his rebels, he became a fool to save the fool. So I want to ask the question, what is God to do if he's surrounded by fools? How do you save a fool? How do you help a fool? I know you have friends and you've tried to help them before, but they're a fool. They cannot be helped, you've concluded. They don't listen. They don't ask. Maybe they don't even care. How do you save someone like that? How can you be helpful to somebody who doesn't want the help, who doesn't even know to ask for the help, who doesn't realize the kind of help they need? What do you do? Do you nag? Do you do an intervention? Do you force yourself upon them? How would you save a fool? What does it cost? What does it look like? I want to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for us and it describes this dynamic for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god where is the wise man has not god made foolish the wisdom of the world for since in the wisdom of god the world through it through its wisdom did not come to know god god was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe for indeed jews asked for signs and greeks search for wisdom But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that man, no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast boast in the Lord. In chapter 3, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. In order to save the fool, you have to look like a fool. In order to meet the fool where they're at, you have to become the fool and die a fool's death. And the world looking upon the fool's death says, what a fool. He lived, he said things, and now he's found himself hanging on a cross. What a fool. There is no way... There's no way we would bow down and worship Jesus if we were with Jesus uh, in real time. There's no way any one of us would have said, that is the picture of wisdom. Dead man hanging on a cross, stripped naked, in shame, in disgrace. And yet today, the cross of Christ is the wisdom of God. It is the power of God. And that's just one example, but the example of how wisdom often appears in our life. When God shows up in our life and says, I, the wise king, will save you, we often judge it and experience it as foolishness. It's not desirable. We run from it, not towards it. God's presence in your life is often missed. And judged. It is really hard to pursue someone who is running away. It's really hard to wait for someone who is hostile. It's really hard to die for someone when they're tearing you down. It's really hard to seek for the good of someone who is ignorant and immature. These are all things that look foolish to the onlooker but in reality is filled with wisdom and humility and love. I want to end the sermon uh, reading uh, the lyrics of a couple of songs uh, from one of my favorite Christian authors and theologians and singers. His name is Michael Card. Anybody know Michael Card? Uh, he He sings the story of a man named Hosea. He's a prophet, a minor prophet as they call it. And uh, God ordered him to marry what the scripture calls a whore. And God orders Hosea to marry Gomer because Gomer is a whore and God wants Hosea to feel what it's like to be God in relationship with the nation of Israel. And there are some things that happen like uh, Gomer sells herself to these pimps and then Hosea as her husband has to go buy her back from these pimps can you imagine having to go buy your spouse back and she keeps cheating on him and keeps throwing herself away and he keeps he's having to pursue this fool and in pursuing the fool he's made to look like the fool and so um, michael carr sings about this it's called song of gomer and the words go like this don't know what he sees in me he is spirit he is free And I, the wife of adultery, Gomer is my name. Simply more than I can see, how he keeps on forgiving me, how he keeps his sanity. Hosea, you're a fool. A fool to love someone like me, a fool to suffer silently, though sometimes through your eyes I see, and I'd rather be a fool. The fondness of a father, the passion of a child, the tenderness of a loving friend, an understanding smile. All of this and so much more you've lavished on a faithless whore. I've never known love like this before. Hosea, you're a fool. This God of yours would not have told to lift a love that you couldn't hold. And though time and time again I flee, I'm always glad to see you coming after me. Hosea. You're a fool. He wrote another song called God's Own Fool, not talking about Hosea, but talking about Christ himself who's made a fool so that he can save us, his fools. It seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. For even his family said he was mad and the priest said a demon's to blame. But God, in the form of this angry young man, could not have seemed perfectly sane. Would you close your eyes now and listen to the rest as our prayer? When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable. And come be a fool as well. So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream. And you'll have the faith his first followers had, and you'll feel the weight of the beam. So surrender the hunger to say you must know. Have the courage to say, I believe. For the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. God, these these words are a prayer that we would understand what it's like for you to pursue us, for you to love us, for you to not give up on us. To find us, you became a fool, and you invite us to be fools with you. There is a wisdom in this world, but it's foolishness, and we pray for forgiveness because we have chased after that false wisdom. Teach us humility of the heart that we might be wise.